listening to the Douglas Jacoby podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas is continuing his series on Old Testament characters, now looking at the life of Daniel. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Old Testament Premium Podcast number 49 on Daniel. It's great to be back in Atlanta and with the home congregation, North River. I had a chance to speak there on Sunday. And I'm always encouraged to speak to the campus ministry, the teens, or to present lessons and special programs, especially because so often I'm outside the United States. It's just good to be in the home church. I hope you're doing well. hope you're getting a lot out of the series. The life of Daniel is found primarily in the first six chapters. Uh, really chapters 1 and 2, 4, 5, and 6. The last six chapters, chapters 7 to 12, are apocalyptic visions, much like the book of Revelation. And since in this series we're focusing on character, we'll be leaving this for another time. I'd like to begin in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. And today I'll be using the NIV, British version. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. The year is 586 B.C. After a long siege, the Babylonian armies have finally succeeded in breaching the walls of Jerusalem and destroying not only the city, but also the temple. They take many of the articles from the temple, the sacred vessels, to Babylon, and particularly put them into the temples of their gods. Throughout the book, we see a tension between God and the world, between idolatry and true worship, between polytheism and monotheism, between the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, and the Babylonian gods like Bel and Marduk and Nebo. And so we find the people of God have been given over by their God in punishment. And God has even allowed the holy vessels of the temple to be taken to Babylon. When this uh, first uh, paragraph is read, it's very sad. And yet as we find out pretty quickly in the book of Daniel... God is still in control. And in a a way, he's the one who gave these sacred vessels to the Babylonians. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What do we see right here? That... Daniel is one of the captives. He's from the upper class. He's mentally sharp. He would have to be if he was going to learn a new language, and particularly 
to become expert in the literature of the Babylonians. There was, in fact, tremendous pressure to be Babylonian, to act in the Babylonian way, to learn their culture. And he's going through an extended period of training. Three years is not short. Of course, he'll be expected also to eat the Babylonian food. And so the king assigns Daniel and his friends a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. This is going to cause a problem. Of course, the food may not have been kosher, probably wasn't. In fact, it may have been offered to the idols. Maybe Daniel is like the Apostle Paul, realizing that idols are nothing and idol food. Well, that whole issue is to some degree irrelevant. However, it's hard for me to fully accept that view since the old covenant had not yet been abrogated. Daniel's solution, we're familiar with it, of eating vegetables, wouldn't solve the problem of non-kosher food because even vegetables could be offered in sacrifice to a pagan god. The food that Daniel's going to embrace is more like the, the diet of peasants. Nobles had meat, peasants had, well, they had vegetables. It's still that way in most of the world. But even that wouldn't get around the issue of defilement. Probably the association of Babylonian food with the worldly oppressor of the people of God and its culture is the main point. We're setting up a tension between the people of God and the people of the world. It says the chief, chief captive, the chief official, gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. We've already mentioned some of the reasons he may not, wanted, may not have wanted to eat that food. But here we also see his name is being changed. Well, these men have significant names. There are uh, special meanings. And l- let me just uh, mention those right now because I think it's, it's interesting. Daniel, in Hebrew, is God is my judge. God is my judge. In fact, names in the Bible don't always have deep significance. But in the book of Daniel, this name seems especially appropriate because Daniel will not be judged by the pagans and their religion. He stands before God alone. Then there's Hananiah or Hanyahu. That's Hananiah, which means God has been gracious. His next friend is Mishael. Mishael, who is what God is. And then Azariah, or Azariahu, we call him in English, Azariah. And that means God has helped. So we have God has helped, who is what God is, God has been gracious, and God is judge. The theology is just dripping off the pages here. These men are given new Babylonian names. And we won't go into the meanings of them, partly because I don't know the meanings. Uh, but they, they all incorporate the, the names of various Babylonian deities. Uh, Here's where we're going to see the character of Daniel come out. We already know he's quite a man. He seems to combine characteristics of of several of the kings of Israel. He has the wisdom like Solomon. He has the heart like David. He has the good looks like Absalom. But his character is what's really going to come out. He's asked the chief official for permission to eat in a different way. Well, the point about this man Daniel... It's not that he was taken captive 
or that he was a great student, or good at languages, or that he was a vegetarian or a vegan. The point is that he was faithful, that he would follow the ways of God, not the ways of men. In chapters 2 and 4, he interprets a monarch's dreams. In each case, it's a dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And because these are very familiar passages, may I just read a couple of excerpts? So in 227, this is after the king of Babylon has uh, finally met Daniel, who he has heard can uh, interpret dreams. Daniel replied, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. And a few verses later we read, You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and glory. You are that head of gold. What's being emphasized here? Well, as we know, the power of Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, is only derived from the true God, from the God of heaven. And Daniel, in his interpretation, reminds the king of this fact, similar to the way that that Jesus reminded Pilate that his authority to govern came from above, didn't come from him, or truly even from Rome, it came from God. Daniel also mentioned in the interpretation that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be succeeded. He's the head of gold, but then there'll be a kingdom of silver to follow him and several more. But ultimately, the kingdom of God will prove to be the true political and spiritual reality. Nebuchadnezzar did not like this interpretation, despite what seems at first a a positive reaction. We know that he felt awkward about it. Because in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar erects a statue of gold, as though he's trying to uh, undo the, the vision that Daniel has interpreted. And this statue of gold is 90 feet high. This is just enormous. Well, let's look at the second dream that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar tells him uh, about what he saw about the, this tree. And uh, this is in chapter 4, verse 19. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Daniel speaks the truth to power. We don't know if he felt some degree of insecurity. That's not the point. In the presence of the king, he spoke the truth. He spoke the truth to one who at least on the surface, seemed to be far more powerful than he was. And in so doing, God is honored. Daniel holds up the Lord God as the true and ultimate authority. And yet, he doesn't belittle the monarch. He does not show sarcasm. He is respectful. And he says, if only the dream applied to your enemies and not to you. He's respectful. And yet, respect does not mean diplomacy to the point of being politically correct. 
you know, when the truth is skirted or completely avoided so as not to rock the boat or offend. Daniel may be in the diplomatic corps. Well, he, he looks like his, his government position requires a degree of finesse. But he doesn't act like a politician. He doesn't act like a typical uh, diplomat. And we see this as we continue this quotation where he drives home the point to Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to this. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Wow. (laughs) Can you imagine meeting a prime minister or a king or a president and being this direct? Daniel minces no words. He reminds Nebuchadnezzar who the real sovereign is. It's God. And in no uncertain words, he urges the king to repent. He doesn't just say, renounce your sins and make an improvement. He specifically says that the king has a duty of being kind to the oppressed. A tremendous and consistent emphasis among the prophets and bold men and women of the Old Testament that true leaders need to take care of the weak. Daniel urges the king to repent. As we know, Nebuchadnezzar is determined to learn the hard way, and he does learn the hard way, only being humbled at the very end of chapter 4. Well, if we go to chapter 5, we see that uh, Daniel does not hold back uh, challenging Nebuchadnezzar's effective successor, his successor's Belshazzar. And this is that very colorful chapter where the, the hand appears on the wall and it's writing some words that are cryptic and, and uh, Belshazzar is not able to figure them out. And Daniel begins by reminding him that Belshazzar uh, should have been humble given what took place in the life of his predecessor. So let's read 522 and following. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the, king, against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Let me pause right there. Belshazzar has been using the sacred vessels to toast the pagan gods. It's not just that he's supporting idolatry and trying to promote it through this this enormous uh, uh, drinking and eating orgy. That's basically what it is. It's that he's even using the sacred vessels from the temple of God. So it's it's a double blasphemy. And, And Daniel says, you have no excuse. You should have learned from history, particularly because it was only a few years ago. Therefore, he, that is God, sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. 
Mene, mene, tekel, parson. This is what these words mean. Mene. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Peres. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed round his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Well, once again, Daniel knows who the true Lord is, and it's not political power. It's not the one who's a despot, an absolute monarch. It is the king of kings, and that is not the Babylonian king. Daniel also knows how abhorrent idolatry is to God, and all the more so when the sacred vessels from the temple are used to toast the false gods of Babylon. Daniel knows beyond all doubt that God is the judge, Daniel, and God is not just my judge, as Daniel's name proclaims, God is the judge of this king, Belshazzar, who is blaspheming the Lord. And as we know the story, Belshazzar dies that very night as the Medo-Persian alliance takes over and the Babylonian Empire uh, disappears. Now we're at chapter 6. 6-1, it pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. What's happening here in the new administration? Well, the men who had to answer to Daniel, well, the, the satraps answered to the administrators and the administrators answered to Daniel, but Daniel was the, the man over all of them. They were not so happy. Under this new administration, the Persian administration, these uh, government officials were not happy about Daniel's integrity. He made them so uncomfortable that they sought a way to remove him. Continuing, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, We will never find any basis for charges against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Well, this is an incredible compliment that they're paying when they say that we, they could find no corruption in him. The only way they could get him is on his religion, his faith. He was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. If I were looking for a job and I wanted a reference, what a great line for the reference in the resume. This applicant is trustworthy. He's not negligent at all. They really had nothing to accuse him of. Well, as they know, as we know, they set a trap for him. And he, uh, he, he refused to back down. He prayed uh, visibly, not to the king. He prays to the God of uh, the Israelites, and he's thrown to the lions. Daniel refuses to sacrifice his spiritual principles. Well, what is the secret of this great man of God? 
The most important thing in his life is, is God himself. And we see this in his prayer, for example, in chapter 6 and chapter 9. Chapter 6, where he prays three times a day, and nothing will make him stop. Chapter 9, where we see this great passion. Daniel is consistent. He does it for the Lord, not for men. How about you and me? Do you have a regular time when you read, when you pray, when you meditate, when you're really with the Lord on a daily basis? Is that what you strive for? I'm not trying to be legalistic and create laws, but the Scripture clearly shows that God must be central in our lives. Even in tough times, Daniel refused to back down. And if the prayer that he uttered in chapter 9 is anything to go by, his prayers were not fluffy. They were sincere. They had heart and and depth. Nor was he flippant in the presence of the divine. In our day, there's so many religious figures who, who are flippant, who distort the gospel and peddle it. I watched something on television last week. It was a, a rich a televangelist. I believe his name was Popoff. And he was selling, well, he was saying it was free, but he was looking for donations. He was peddling miracle water. And he had all these people giving testimonies about how they, they would anoint uh, their well, whatever it was, themselves or, or their, um, their car or their television or whatever, with this miracle water, and they would end up getting rich. What a, a, a casual and flippant arrogance to have in the presence of God. Daniel is the exact opposite. He's not trying to use religion to get ahead. If he were the opportunist, then he would have played the game. He would have let the Babylonian and Persian accusers manipulate him. He refuses to do that. He shows great reverence. In fact, Daniel is overwhelmed in the presence of the divine. Now, in the attached notes, I've got a a number of these verses. I'm just going to read one passage here. And this is uh, as he's having the vision in Daniel 10, and he sees this angel. Listen to this. Then the one who looked like a man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I am helpless. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone. I can hardly breathe. So this is not, not Daniel being all pally with the, with the divine, not with an angel, not with the Lord. He, he can hardly breathe. The presence of God is, is terrifying. And he says that he's overcome with anguish. And again, um, all the, um, the verses I'm referring to are in the notes, the same place you'll find the Hebrew words and their meanings as in every podcast. Well, Daniel's prayer, as we see, is very revolutionary. And we, we may miss this at times. And in, in, we're, we're looking at the secret of his power, which is really, it's not a secret, but it's his prayer life. It, it's, it's revolutionary, and it's not so obvious at first. Okay, so the man keeps the door, the windows open as he prays in Jerusalem. Why doesn't he just close the door or do it in an inner closet or something and not be so, uh, uh, you know, do, do what Jesus said in Matthew 6? Well, Jesus in Matthew 6 is talking about not doing it for show. There's a different principle here. And this is the principle of taking a stand for God, confessing our faith in front of others. Different principle entirely. And... Daniel, Daniel will not back down. His prayer was revolutionary because of this. 
if he himself had attempted a coup, let's say he'd used his political influence to try to seize power from the king, then in a way he would have been recognizing the, the ultimacy of the emperor's power. That is, he would be admitting, yes, well, that is the ultimate power. Let me get some of that. And that's the way revolutionaries typically work. But when Daniel prays to the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the one over the Persian king, he's denying the ultimacy of the Persian monarch's power. He's accepting a higher power. And this, of course, is a threat and in some ways an insult to the state, to this uh, God-man, the Persian king, who, who believed that he ruled um, in the place of God. And so our challenge is to be like Daniel. We live in Babylon. I certainly do. There are many pressures to compromise, to be like the world, maybe not to speak up or to play down our faith. Don't you, don't you ever do that? Often I, I go to uh, the gym or maybe I'll be uh, sitting on an airplane and I'm reading something that is quite spiritual in nature. Sometimes I feel odd. I don't know if I want people seeing the captions or the, the cover or all the Christian um, advertisements because I, I just want peace here and, and they may think I'm strange. And so sometimes I, I find myself kind of covering up the, the parts that they might see. On the other hand, if someone does notice what I'm reading and that it's spiritual, that, that opens up a great conversation. But I'm very familiar with that temptation to compromise. I think the question is, are we going to adopt the ways of the world or are we going to stand apart? Not being nervous around important people. Not an easy thing to do. In the scriptures, we see Daniel reaches out, but many men and women reach out and they treat these, uh, uh, these uh, uh, important people, these uh, uh, monarchs and, and other persons of influence, they treat them with respect, but by showing them the truth. This week, I, I remembered the rabbi that I debated twice last year, and he had mentioned something in passing about coming to his home for dinner sometime. And I thought about this. Well, yesterday, I got in touch with him, and I said, you know, I would like to take you up on your offer. And you'd say, well, so? You're having dinner with the rabbi? Yeah. But this guy, he, he's friends with Oprah Winfrey. He was Michael Jackson's spiritual advisor. He knows Boy George, Maradona, the soccer great. He knows dozens, maybe hundreds of people who most of us have heard of. And so it could be a bit intimidating. I don't care who you are. But I'm, I'm glad I took the initiative because he said, sure, come on up. Uh, you and your wife, come up and, and well, you can join us for our, our Shabbat, for, our, Seder, for our, um, our, our, our Sabbath dinner. I thought, terrific. Well, here's my question for you. Is there someone you know you could reach out to who is kind of intimidating? Do you know someone who, I mean, it might go well. Maybe that's even the fear. Fear is not that it'll go badly. It's, well, what if the guy says yes? Now what do I say? I mean, I'm outclassed. Don't you know that feeling? I I do. To be like Daniel means we're going to be standing apart. We're going to speak the truth to important people and not be negligent or procrastinating. It's that uh, chapter 6, verse 4 in in the list of key verses. I definitely wanted to put that one in there. We, We mustn't be negligent. I believe Christians should be the first ones considered at work when something important has to be done. And the jobs I've had, I think because I was a Christian in most of them, people would, would say, well, let's get uh, Doug to do it. 
they, they knew I would really try. Not that I would do it perfectly, but be conscientious. We should never be the ones who drift into work late or, or pretend to work when we're actually otherwise engaged, but being responsible. So we're, we're above reproach, and this uh, makes the gospel more attractive. Being men and women of responsibility. Hey, if you're a student, same thing goes. Remember, we do it for the Lord Christ. He's the one we're serving, Colossians 3.23. To be persons of character, we must learn from the Daniels that the Lord has put into our lives. And most of all, we need to emulate the impeccable character of Jesus Christ. Daniel is a man of prayer, and this is at the heart of his power. And surely there's much for us to learn, and we all have things to change. It has implications for us um, and our daily living. There are, of course, some incredible biblical parallels to Daniel. I think you may already have noticed how similar his story is to Joseph's, how he's, he's taken into captivity, rises up, becomes an important government official, speaks to kings. But probably the the best uh, uh, parallel is the parallel between Daniel and Jesus Christ. What do we see here? After I studied the book of Daniel in preparation for the podcast, I spent a little bit of time in in, uh, a commentary series I, I really think is very good. And I'd like to share with you a paragraph from a commentary. It's by John Goldinger. It says, He too, this is comparing Jesus and Daniel, He too is a victim of conspiracy and betrayal from people whose position is threatened by him and who seek occasion to manipulate higher authorities into executing him, professing that they have no king but Caesar. They too will eventually pay for their hostility along with their children. He too is arrested at his customary place of prayer. These higher authorities, too, find no fault in him and labor to free him, but are reminded that the law forbids it. He, too, has to rely on God to deliver him as his tomb is sealed. Indeed, he actually dies. An injury can be found on him after he comes back from the dead. More extraordinary is it, then, that very early at sunrise, he, too, is discovered to be alive after all. What an amazing parallel. Let's not miss the Christology of these golden Old Testament passages. Well, what do we learn about God? Well, there are four things that I get from the story of Daniel, which I think show us about the character of God first. God will be with us. Even though we live and move amidst a culture that's hostile to the way of truth, God will be with us. We may feel like foreigners and strangers and just weird, aliens. No one's really on our, on our wavelength. But God will be with us. Second, God alone is the worthy object of our worship. Third, God moves in the life of the one who prays. We've studied the life and character of an amazing person, and we've seen that his prayer is at the center God moves in the life of the one who prays. And last, God honors the person who honors him. Let's learn from Daniel, walk in his footsteps, but ultimately walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on Daniel. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. 
The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.